Welcome to episode 228 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson, uh, and our last for four weeks. So uh, um, enjoy. Uh, thanks for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And today I'm joined for uh, the interview uh, by Noah Phillips, who's a commissioner of the uh, Federal Trade Commissioner and an alumnus of Steptoe and Johnson. Um, he, in between those uh, two jobs, he was chief counsel to Senator uh, John Cornyn on the Senate Judiciary Committee, uh, where he advised on, well, everything the Judiciary Committee worries about. Uh, Noah, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here, Stuart. It's a pleasure to have you here. Uh, and uh, for our news roundup, we've got a uh, great uh, lineup. Matthew Hy Hyman, uh, who's the visiting scholar uh, at the National Security Institute at George Mason, formerly with the Justice Department. Matthew? Good to be with you. Okay. Gus Hurwitz on the line uh, from Nebraska, where he teaches law at the University of Nebraska. Gus, good to talk to you again. Great, as always. And Dr. Meg Megan Reese, uh, Senior National Security Fellow at the R Street Institute, uh, a visiting fellow at the National Security Institute, Senior Editor at Lawfare. And uh, does the doctor mean you're not a lawyer? Well, I have an LLM, but not a lawyer. Okay. All right. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host of today's program. We're going to jump right in, kind of uh, a little bit ahead of schedule, at least uh, for recent years. Uh, the National Defense Authorization Act is going to pass maybe as early as this week, if the Senate gets, gets around to it. Uh, uh, and it's a big deal. It always is a big deal. But this year, they have added more stuff than usual. An entire CFIUS review uh, has been added to the NDAA. It was tinkered with in the House and weakened, I think, a little, but probably not significantly. This is a big deal for people who do investment reviews. It means uh, uh, a massive increase in the number of filings that people are going to have to make uh, because it gets rid of the concept of control. Uh, it, it gets rid of the concept of passive investment and looks much more closely at what kinds of information people are going to get. This is uh, this is really a tribute to Senator Cornyn and his uh, uh, effort to deal with problems that were first flagged at the end of the Obama administration. Uh, I, and uh, uh, it is, you know, practically the only bill uh, in a freestanding sense that has been passed with bipartisan support in years, right? I don't know that I would go quite that far, uh, but there's a lot of truth to it. Uh, one of the great things about Senator Cornyn is, at the end of the day, he's a legislator. Yes, he is. That's right. He wants to. Uh, he wants to write laws that solve problems. Uh, Correct. Uh, yeah, it's uh, it's impressive, uh, and I, I, it also shows. I think, and I, I want to ask you to confirm this, Noah. Uh, uh, that um, it's not really possible to write legislation in committee that will likely pass. You have to have somebody from leadership who takes a personal interest to, to make a bill move. Otherwise, it's just too easy to stop. 
like that's that's my theory. Uh, okay, so it's been attached to the NDAA. The House has agreed to it. Uh, the Senate is, is not showing any signs of not adopting it. And so uh, FIRMA, the uh, Foreign Investment uh, Regulatory Reform uh, uh, and or, uh, Regulatory Review and Modernization Act, uh, uh, is going to be law. It'll take about 18 months to get all of the uh, funding and other procedures in place, but this is going to be a big deal, uh, uh, especially for those of us do, who do CFIUS. Uh, and that's not all. Uh, Megan, there's a cyber solarium project in here. I think this is Senator Sass's uh, um, uh, work, but there have yep. been a lot of supporters. Yes. Uh, what is the cyber solarium project and, and our board or commission, um, a, and why should we care? Well, full disclosure, I worked for Senator Sass, so I may be a little more on board with this than the average listener. But Cyber Solarium is based on Eisenhower's Solarium Project, where they where Eisenhower looked at the information he was getting from folks at his NSC and just felt like the rigor wasn't there in figuring out how to deal with the Cold War, nuclear threats, the Soviet Union. And what Senator Sass and and his team, Klon Kitchen over at Heritage, was pivotal in this, um, they, they interpreted that cyber defense and cyber strategy in the U.S. is not as rigorous as it needs to be. So what the point of this is, is to kind of force through legislation, big actors in the government and in Congress to sit down and spend enough time to de- to develop a real rigorous strategy that's going to get us through not just the Trump administration, but four or eight years out, the next administration and the one after that. And it's going to kind of guide how we deal with cyber threats. Okay, I see. So this this it does make sense, although putting all these political actors in the room uh, kind of makes it hard to have a uh, detailed discussion. Oh yes, and and actually, one of the parts of this that I know. Uh, Klon Kitchen is really worried about is that they'll come back and it's going to look like any of these other reports where you have. Oh, we need a public-private partnership. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> or there was a report that came out a couple years ago on cyber deterrence that I. As a deterrence person, it defined deterrence differently in each section because I could tell they couldn't quite agree what it meant. Yeah. And so there's always that concern. But I think what they should do is if they get it back and it doesn't look good enough, just send it back to to this com- committee or reform another committee in September of next year and say, do it again, not good enough. So I, I am contributing to this. I didn't know that. But uh, about two weeks ago, when we were talking about the Russians being in our uh, grid, and, and we're still talking about that, uh, uh, I said, well, fine. You know, I, I, I never want to hear somebody again say, well, denial is deterrence, because mm-hmm. we ain't denying anybody access yeah. to our grid, um, a, that we needed to come up with unthinkable options. Mm-hmm. We needed to, th- to think the unthinkable. Mm-hmm. And so naturally, I called it the iceberg project because we're rooting for the iceberg. Um, (laughs) And I have now mm, 15 to 20, uh, in many cases, truly unthinkable Mm -hmm. options for responding, many of them kinetic or quasi-kinetic. You know, hopefully they won't kill anybody. Uh, 
My favorite was the one that says, uh, Dear Vlad, um, we see you've put black energy in our grid. Uh, in response, we've um, uh, put mines outside your commercial harbors. But don't worry. Good news is they're all at the bottom of the sea. Uh, uh, bad news is, and they'll stay there as long as our satellites keep sending them signals to stay there. Bad news is the device that sends the signal is plugged into our grid. So if you attack our grid, bad things are going to happen. I mean, it's creative thinking. It is making sure, look, supposedly there's never been an active cyber war against the U.S., according to our officials. But okay, so what does that mean for deterrence? Does that mean we sh- we don't have the authority to do no, anything this, yet? This no. is a complete waste of time yeah. to ask whether it's an active war. Yeah. It, it, uh, the question is, are we going to tolerate this yes. as a great power? Yes. Uh, and and the answer ought to be no. And we ought to have options, and they ought to not just depend mm-hmm. on trying to shut down computers. Yeah. Uh, but uh, disabling ships, yep. mining harbors, setting off EMPs. Mm-hmm. Uh, if if somebody messes with our grid, we're going to want to do all of those yep. things, and we should have a real list of of uh, truly scary options. Yep, and my guess is that's what this commission is going to come back with. Oh well, they can all be part of the iceberg project. <laughs> uh, anybody who wants to, you can send me. The, I, I have two deals for for listeners. You can send me proposals for the iceberg project if you send really good ideas. I'll give you credit as a member of the project. And if you send just extraordinary ideas, you can take your name off the project. <laughs> All right. Uh, Gus, what else is in the NDAA? Oh, there's a whole lot um, in there. Uh, there are 12, 13, 14 different uh, sections of the NDAA that really get into uh, the weeds on cyber stuff. Um, some of which, uh, Stuart, you might really like. Uh, a couple of uh, high-level, smaller things that I think are interesting. First, it's uh, expressly calling for DOD to craft express policies uh, relating to uh, what the U.S. is going to do in the cyber domain. The policies that uh, we come up with probably going to be garbage. Uh, we've done this sort of exercise before, but now we're being directed to actually come up with real policies which at least we get to see what stupid ideas we're going to put down on paper. Um, a couple of uh, uh, possibly better small things. Uh, there's a call for a DOD to offer assistance to uh, small manufacturers in the supply chain. This is uh, reflective of ongoing thinking, which is, I think, a positive change that we need to focus on supply chain, issue, supply chain issues in uh, cybersecurity. And this is going a step further. Didn't I see that the uh, um, Defense Department has also come up with a list of do not buy these products uh, that is aimed at trying to clean out the supply chain for, um, you know, of uh, uh, companies that they believe are uh, deeply under the influence of our adversaries? Right. So DOD has come up with that list and the NDAA is going to require DOD to adhere to the DHS list as well. Ah. Uh, So there's going to be... Uh, some alignment between uh, uh, those uh, different government components. Um, the NDAA also is putting in place a pilot program to simulate um, critical infrastructure attacks. Unclear where that's going to go. It's just a, 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 a pilot program that's being called for, but that's interesting. Now, there are a couple of uh, higher uh, value things in the NDAA, uh, the first of which I think uh, you're really going to like based upon your comments uh, from the Cyber Solarium uh, discussion uh, with Megan. 
Um, the NDAA basically recognized that, uh, quote, cyber activities are really just a new form of traditional military activities. And it says expressly that um, use of all instruments of national power in response to cyber activities um, are going to be considered and on the table. So we're no longer in the realm of, oh, you did something cyber to us. We're going to do something cyber back to you. Maybe you take out our satellites. We'll mine your harbor. Can I ask you um, real quick? So, that's been that's technically been our policy the whole time. Do you think this will change anything? Uh, I hope that it will end a lot of silly debates over whether or not that is actually our policy. Yeah. And we've spent the last 10 or 15 years arguing over this. And over the last uh, three or four years, everyone that I've heard uh, talk about uh, this issue says, yeah, we don't need to respond in kind. Uh, a, quote, cyber attack, whatever that is, uh, is an, an attack. It doesn't matter that it's cyber. So we can uh, respond in some other appropriate way, or we could take cyber, uh, use cyber capabilities in response to uh, non-cyber attacks. Um, it's good, I think, that uh, at a statutory level, the new con uh, congressionally directed understanding of this uh, question is there's no question anymore get over it. We're going to respond however is appropriate. Um, the uh, last really interesting uh, thing in there, uh, which could be, if anything, is a stumbling block for uh, the NDAA. This could be the uh, stumbling block. Um, it directs, and the word direct is important, Cyber Command to take appropriate and proportional action against Russian cyber efforts to disrupt U.S. Um, uh, uh, institutions. And this actually goes beyond uh, Russia, but the Russian Federation is called out by name. I um, mean, the reason this is potentially challenging is this is directing DOD to take acti uh, uh, to take activity that really is traditionally within the uh, ambit of the executive. So there could be some understandable discomfort on the part of the president uh, here, and if there is a veto, I it could come from this provision. Um, I expect ultimately it will go through, but it, it is interesting that uh, Congress is saying, uh, Cyber Command, you are directed to actually engage in some form of activity uh, to disrupt uh, these efforts to disrupt us. So the president doesn't like to, uh, the, the presidents don't like to veto the NDAA, mm -hmm. and I would have thought you could solve this with a signing statement just saying, yeah, when, when you said direct, we think that's direct in the sense of providing directions, steering, giving us guidance, uh, encouraging us to do those things which we want to do. And uh, if they just ignore the word direct uh, or treat it as, as guidance, uh, they, can, they can sign the bill and, uh, and go on their merry way, right? Yeah. That is likely... Uh, uh, the path of least resistance, and as you say, NDAA is always understood as must-pass legislation. But also, as you say, we are surprisingly early in the process this year. I, I will say, though, President Trump last year at the signing of the NDAA actually made a pretty strong statement on a, I can't remember which cyber provision it was, saying, this should be my authority. I disagree with, with, with what this is, but I'm signing it anyways. So it will be interesting with that longer time frame if he'll take that same stance on this and then push it back. I'm guessing no, because they need to get a judge confirmed. They don't want to distract, but... It's, it's, it'll be interesting. I'm guessing at least there will be a pretty strong pushback from during the signing statement. 
All right, from the heights of policy and grand thinking about cyber to uh, what I have to call the depths of uh, lawyerly concern about uh, uh, cyber attacks, the question is, if somebody spoofs an email to you saying, please send money uh, to the following accounts, sign the CEO, and it's not the CEO and it's not coming from his account really, uh, is that covered by a uh, insurance policy that um, allows you to recover if fraud is committed on you using a violation of the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. Matthew? So I, I take issue with the depths. I mean, the heights of the nuance <laughs> of standard form insurance policies, I think, are a burning interest and, and to all th Americans. This is going to the Supreme Court. It's a, it's a circuit split. It is, and it's a wonderful example of the common law at work, trying to figure out what these terms mean. Um, so you're right. There are two cases that have come out uh, during the month of July, one out of the Second Circuit called Metadata Solutions versus Federal Insurance Company. The second one uh, came out about 10 days ago out of the Sixth Circuit called American Tooling Center Inc. versus Travelers, both saying the same thing, which is uh, the insurance company took the not surprising position that, well, you've got a computer, computer fraud provision in your business loss insurance policy, but it doesn't apply to these phishing attacks because this wasn't direct. And so we went down the road of, um, as lawyers often do, the cold sweats over the false graph case and what is proximate cause mm -hmm. and what is direct. And the courts in both cases said the same thing. This is direct. Uh, the insurance company said, well, it's not direct because you've taken the act to send the money as opposed to someone getting into your system and forcing your system to do something you didn't want it to do. And there's a plausible argument that this doesn't violate the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, right? If you, if, if you make all the changes to the emails on your system and then right. send it in, it doesn't have any effect on the system. It just has an effect on the humans who populate the system. Right. But I think, as courts often do, when you're in a new area and you've got insurers providing uh, coverage in a marketplace, they will put the risk on the risk experts, which are the insurance companies, and say, go back, rewrite your clauses. And some insurance companies have done that. They've carved out phishing because there's a product sale opportunity here, and they're starting to offer social, um, social engineering coverage as a policies, separate product. As a separate product from the computer fraud provisions. Yes. So, okay. I mean, th where this, in my view, ultimately winds up is they will craft new, tighter language and new footnotes will get added to those really exciting insurance treatises where every word has a footnote with 40 cases cited as to what that word means. And this is part of that sorting out process. Who, who would have guessed that the, the Supreme Court's principal contribution to uh, cyber law next term could be insurance coverage determinations? I have my hand up in the air right now because I would have guessed that. So <laughs> you're just saying that. And we, we have a, a number of uh, uh, cyber policy insurance cases that are bubbling up. And this is a really important area. Uh, for the industry. So uh, I'm really excited about uh, this in-the-weeds legal issue. I, I just want to echo Gus in that regard with a particular FTC angle here. Uh, we spend a lot of time dealing with our organic statute that requires, in the cases of unfairness, substantial harm. And what that means and what economic grounding you can give for various kinds of cyber losses is like a major discussion among policymakers, judges, 
lawyers, um, insurance policies written specifically for something are a really good indication from the market of where harm exists and what it costs. Mm. So I actually look forward to seeing how that market develops um, and what it means for what we do. Okay. All right. So it wasn't the depths at all. I, uh, lightning round. Uh, let's see if we can do these all in a minute each. The ACLU said it's shocking how bad uh, AWS's uh, recognition, uh, face recognition software is because when they ran uh, Congress against 25,000 uh, uh, mugshots, uh, they found about 28 matches at an 80% probability. Gus, I, isn't 80% kind of sad as a, as a test? Yeah, so this was a wonderful stunt on the part of the ACLU. Of course, the ACLU, like uh, most privacy advocates, they're really up in arms and concerned about facial recognition. 80% is the threshold that Facebook uses for the sort of thing that uh, tagging photos and recommendations like that, where first we're not in the uh, criminal law or government law enforcement context, and we have a user in the loop. So yeah. uh, that's really not the right level of confidence to be looking at. The even bigger issue, though, is the focus here on, on this stunt was on a, a false positive. Really, this technology is going to continue to evolve. It's going to continue to be developed. I actually want government and law enforcement to be involved in that process because there are problems with the technology. There are racial disparities uh, in it, for instance. And if it's just Facebook developing this, less likely that uh, uh, really equal protection sort of concerns are going to be considered as the technology develops. But really, the, the false positives aren't the problem for the technology. It's false negatives. Um, I don't care so much about, hey, when you run a set group of people against mugshots, are you finding uh, uh, the, uh, are you mismatching good actors against bad? I care, is this technology actually capable of matching bad actors against those mugshots? So what's the false negative rate? And this doesn't really tell us anything about that. And that's where the technology needs to uh, improve. Uh, so this technology is going to continue to develop. Let's find ways to uh, develop it well uh, instead of uh, trying to throw obstacles in the way. All right. Uh, and um, uh, just if, for people who were following uh, the uh, ZTE matter, um, China was holding hostage. You know, Qualcomm was a uh, uh, viewed as a big U.S. Uh, um, 5G uh, standard bearer, uh, and it had wanted to merge with NXP, another chip maker, uh, designer. Uh, everybody in the world, eight different uh, competition authorities had approved that. And China said, yeah, we, uh, we're kind of waiting to see on that, uh, presumably waiting to see how ZTE turned out. ZTE turned out fine for ZTE, and China just let the clock run out on the NXP deal, which is now collapsed and uh, Qualcomm had to pay NXP $2 billion. So it's like the Chinese have imposed a $2 billion fine on uh, uh, Qualcomm uh, uh, because the U.S. raised the ZTE issue uh, uh, ugly. Um, the, uh, uh, Gus, I'll ask you about this. Uh, uh, should I say the same thing is happening in the People's Republic of New York uh, 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 as they uh, 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 say that uh, they're going to throw, I think, charter out of the um, – uh, uh, they're going to undo the merger because uh, charter didn't live up to its promises uh, uh, made when the merger with Time Warner occurred? 
Yeah, this is an unprecedented move uh, in modern history. Uh, the State Public Service Commission uh, has decided to revoke their conditional uh, approval of the merger back in 2016. Um, it's a, a really shocking development. Uh, what's really going to happen here in the long run? Well, it's going to be uh, challenged administratively and then uh, appealed. The real issue seems to be uh, has Charter built out uh, to the number of homes that they promised that they would uh, build out to uh, when they got the uh, merger approval? And there is a disagreement over what it means to have uh, actually built out to the homes and which regions and territories of the state count for that. So there's a lot to be litigated here. Um, it's a really shocking development. Um, and we're starting to see a, a lot of states in the telecom space try and do some kind of loopy sort of things like this. Um, I, I'm thinking the uh, net neutrality and privacy efforts in particular, um, where they're not happy with the national scale policies. Um, and of course, in the uh, antitrust context and uh, in the case of mergers, the states have always played an important role. But to unscramble the egg is an extreme remedy. Uh, and it's going to be really interesting to watch uh, how this plays out. Well, we had this problem in, in Sipius, too. Uh, and I, I actually did unscramble an egg once because I thought the uh, parties had made promises that they then uh, actually, and, and I guess in that case, the parties hadn't filed. And I said, you should have filed. Uh, I, and uh, we ultimately said, you got to sell the company that you acquired. It happened that this was uh, um, Socialist Venezuela's biggest uh, election company had acquired one of the biggest American voting machine companies. And I said, no, I don't think so. Uh, and that indeed, the entire CFIUS said that. Uh, uh, and then we had to force a, uh, uh, a uh, a, a sale, but um, doing it in this case is much harder because they've probably combined a lot of their uh, uh, activities. On the other hand, if you can't enforce, if, if, if you are going to accept deals from people in which they say, I will do the following 12 things, you have to have some mechanism for enforcing it. So it was either this or some, some big fine. I think you would all read with interest an early speech given by Assistant Attorney General Macon Delrahim okay. on, in antitrust, uh, the preference for what we call structural remedies over behavioral remedies. Structural remedies are like, take that business and sell it. As, as opposed to, I promise to be really good and, and uh, send a Christmas card every, every Christmas. Precisely. Okay. Yeah, and I, I was just going to actually uh, reference that speech and uh, cue up a question. Um, for uh, uh, Noah, exactly on that question and how uh, he would think about this. So, um, as Stuart says, they have probably, the, the companies have probably consolidated a lot of operations, decommissioned or sold off switches and the like. So it's really hard to separate these. It's unclear. Will they undo the merger? Will they sell off territories to another small competitor or entrant in New York State? How will they satisfy what the PSC wants them to do? Um, and how is that going to benefit consumers if the goal, if the problem is they're not building out quickly enough? This is just going to slow down deployment, if anything. Really, I hope that what this will do in the long run, uh, I, I hope the PSC won't be successful, but what will happen is this will clarify the uh, conditions that uh, state PSCs and uh, DOJ, since uh, uh, n 
NOAA doesn't need to worry about the uh, uh, common carrier mergers at the FCC, um, but uh, uh, the uh, specific terms that DOJ and the states put on these build-out requirements in order to make sure that there's real clarity uh, moving forward in the future. All right. And uh, while we're on the topic of imposing massive fines on American companies uh, for displeasing foreign regulators, uh, um, GDPR took most of the blame or GDPR compliance took most of the blame for a 20 percent drop in Facebook and Twitter uh, stock over uh, over the week. Uh, kind of a, a big deal. Uh, uh, Matthew, uh, one sentence on this. Yeah, well, bad Regulation has bad consequences. Yeah, uh, and yet, uh, as as we'll 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 talk to Noah about this. Uh, my guess is that if you were smaller than Twitter and Facebook, uh, the hit was even bigger. Uh, yeah, you're probably close to out of business. Yeah, and it's what surprises me, Google, no sign of a GDPR dip. Uh, okay. So stay on the line for more GDPR Yes, we will have more on that uh, <laughs> uh, just uh, after this break. Uh, no, we don't have a, com- a commercial sponsor. Uh, <laughs> last, uh, last topic. Um, India is leaning on WhatsApp to start providing access to authenticated uh, to to the sender of messages. Uh, uh, it's getting the usual WhatsApp line, which is that they value their users' privacy, but they're in an awkward spot because people are getting killed because of rumors, uh, and so this is putting WhatsApp in a position of basically saying, yeah, these people are engaged in hate speech and fake speech, but we can't tell you who they are. Going to be a a tough fight. My guess is the Indians, who are nothing if not self-confident regulators, um, are going to squeeze WhatsApp pretty hard. Yeah, the the fascinating thing about this case, and these are really tragic stories. It's kind of the... uh, even worse than the cases of swatting in the United States, where you call a SWAT team a, a false uh, call on someone, and the SWAT team shows up and throws a grenade in someone's house. This is sending rumors about someone uh, that create a, a lynch mob, and they go and literally kill uh, the person. So it's really a, a, a tragic uh, sort of fact pattern. Um, and the fascinating thing from the encryption debate perspective is this isn't about decrypt the contents of the communication. It's about tell us who sent the communications and be able to trace back uh, the communication to the sender so that when the sender is causing these real harms intentionally, we can find out who they are and take action against them. Uh, so it's, it's a metadata debate about end-to-end encryption, not a content debate about end-to-end encryption, uh, which I think from uh, the standard discussion perspective uh, makes it different and pretty interesting. Yeah, and tougher for WhatsApp to, to hang tough on. Uh, though I, I, I'm pretty sure they're going to uh, they're going to they're going to take a lot of uh, uh, incoming on this. All right, um, that's our news. Uh, and now mm-hmm. on to our interview with uh, Noah Phillips. Uh, um, so, though uh, it's really a pleasure to have you back. It's such a pleasure to be back. All right. Um, um, I'm not sure the listeners all know, Stuart, that I used to work in part for you. Yes, you did. Uh, you did. Uh, you have you have overcome the uh, disadvantage that that conferred on you uh, many times. But uh, therapy is a great a thing. In fact, I, did, I I think I worked with you for like a year without even knowing you were a Republican, which is probably 
prudent in a large law firm. But, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but it's great to uh, great to see how uh, well your career has uh, has blossomed. Uh, um, and one of the things that you you worked on, or at least heard me yelling about, was the EU. Uh, GDPR and, of course, my hobby horse, PNR, which is the data that the American government collects uh, from uh, in, uh, uh, incoming carriers to know who's coming on the flight before they arrive here so that they can make decisions about uh, whether they want to screen them or not. Uh, and that has been in dispute with the U.S. Uh, and Europe really since 2002. Uh, and uh, there currently is an agreement that uh, PNR data will be gathered with some restrictions imposed by the uh, EU. Uh, but the European Court of Justice has thrown a monkey wrench into the debate uh, by saying not about the American uh, standards, but about the Canadian standards, that they just <laughs> don't meet the high standards that the European Court of Justice has uh, for being adequate under European law. Uh, and so we've got a fight coming, I think. Uh, maybe the European Commission will be on the U.S. side this time because they have woken up to the value of PNR. Um, but the FTC plays a role in these discussions that I think be useful to hear about from your point of view. Sure. Uh, and, and thank you for the opportunity to speak to that. Uh, obviously, the FTC doesn't play a specific role with respect to PNR. Um, but I think it is very safe to say, as you did, that we play a very important role facing the Europeans and other countries abroad um, with respect to the U.S. and privacy. Uh, the first role that I think we play is we are and have long been uh, the most important federal agency when it comes to enforcing consumer privacy. Um, we have a series of risk-based statutes and regulations from financial data to data about children um, that we enforce. Uh, and we also, as I mentioned earlier, have our organic statute. Uh, and we have brought privacy cases for decades under all of those laws. Um, that's the first point. The second point is that in the course of doing all that enforcement uh, and in meeting the test that Congress laid out for us over 100 years ago uh, to sort of be an educated and informed agency that in turn educates and informs the public, uh, we and, and the great staff at the FTC have done incredible work thinking about privacy and thinking about the application of privacy law, um, how it helps consumers, how sometimes it can hurt competition, uh, a whole host of different factors. Um, and I think we have a lot to teach others. I think we have a good message that we can bring. Um, and then I'd be remiss if I didn't also mention, um, there are certain specific instances, uh, and I'll pick on another agreement that I know you're very familiar with, that's the Privacy Shield uh, and its predecessor, the Safe Harbor Agreement. Um, we brought about 50 cases um, to enforce those in CBPR, uh, the, uh, the APEC agreement. Um, and it's important that we do that uh, where there are violations because that's an important part of meeting our international commitment. Because the European Union thinks of you as the equivalent of their data protection commissions, that is to say, independent and able to take action without uh, the oversight necessarily of the elected uh, uh, chief of government. Uh, um, and even though you don't have a 
uh, a mandate from Congress that's, that has privacy and data protection uh, in the uh, words of the statute, they've more or less accepted you as the equivalent of their data protection commissions. That seems to be how things have shaken out, yes. So Julie Brill used to play a role uh, as a commissioner uh, uh, engaging with the Europeans uh, uh, on all of these topics uh, uh, and bringing such prestige as a data protection commissioner would have uh, uh, to the debate. Uh, is there some formal assignment of role to a particular commissioner uh, um, to take that uh, uh, job, or does it just sort of fall to whoever um, uh, is most interested in going to Paris? Um, well, in this case, Brussels. Uh, uh, and yeah. it, that's an important distinction. That is an important <laughs> distinction. I can see you're already trying to downsell it to make sure the chairman doesn't <laughs> want to do this. Uh, there isn't a formal role assignment. Um, to some extent, it has to do with uh, who has the appetite and who has the interest. Um, uh, I think this is an area where you can expect to hear from me in the future. Uh, recently, uh, a couple weeks ago, the chairman and I met with the, uh, the Libe committee crowd uh, who come annually to the United States. Uh, they are very concerned about the adequacy of Privacy Shield. Uh, we did our best to explain the important role that I mentioned before that the FTC plays. So I, one of the things I hope you'll raise with them often uh, is that uh, they only have the right to restrict exports of data under the WTO agreements if they are not acting unreasonably or discriminatorily. Um, and discrimination is measured by what you do, not what you say, not the, the apparent neutrality of your rules. Um, there must have been 50 disputes with the United States over exports of data uh, on the internet and, and related to it in the last 15 years. There have been none with China, even though China is going to be close to or surpass the United States in supplying elements of the mobile internet in 5G. Um, and there are uh, millions of tourists and others in Europe right now using apps on uh, using Chinese apps that send their data home on Chinese phones that send their data home running on Chinese infrastructure that sends its data uh, home to China and no one in authority seems to have challenged those data exports on the ground that the, the constitutional um, protections of China don't measure up to the august standards of the European Court of Justice. Uh, let me say two things. The first is I'm glad to be able to throw a flag I throw from time to time, which is that the trade in Federal Trade Commission is not the same trade as in WTO. That's true. Uh, and that is not fundamentally within our remit. Let me say the following. One of the interesting things to me about the discussion back and forth, in particular between Europe and the U.S., about commercial privacy, let's leave aside to some extent uh, the national security and law enforcement side, is that they approach the question from kind of a fundamental rights perspective. Um, and I think it's important, by the way, that Americans, when we talk to Europeans, that we recognize that, mm -hmm. um, that they have a different tradition, uh, a tradition of laws, they have a different history than we do. Uh, and so it's, we have to take those into account uh, when we speak to them. And by the same token, um, when they think about us, they have to understand that our sort of rights approach to privacy uh, is really the Fourth Amendment uh, and the laws that Congress has built around it uh, on national security and law enforcement, stored communications, that sort of thing. Um, so 
we have, if you will, and I, I hate to use the postmodern terminology, a little bit of a different lens. But I think given that, it's fair for Americans to ask, if these rights are fundamental to you, why are there inconsistencies if those inconsistencies exist? I think those are fair questions to ask. Yeah. Okay. Um, so you don't have legislative authority, uh, uh, either in privacy or in cybersecurity, which is intimately tied to it and which you've enforced in 50 or 60 consent decrees. Um, the LabMD decision uh, looks to me as though it really um, – it, it's creating a serious authority problem for the commission because the commission is used to catching people in something that doing something they shouldn't do, uh, squeezing them hard and then offering them a consent decree in which they promise that for the next 20 years they'll do all kinds of good things uh, and, uh, and then enforcing that uh, and telling the world, well, if you want to know what you should be doing, you can read our consent decrees. Uh, uh, but due to what I think was just uh, dumb stubbornness on the part of the FTC, the last FTC, I should say, um, it pursued a case against LabMD all the way to the 11th Circuit. And the 11th Circuit was a shaky case. And the 11th Circuit said, you know, we read this consent decree and uh, we don't see how you could enforce it. People need to know exactly what they're supposed to do so they can be held in contempt if they don't do it. And vague language that requires people to do good stuff isn't um, uh, isn't specific enough for us to impose sanctions on people who fail to adhere to it. Um, is this going to require a real rethinking of the the business model of consent decrees for the future? The case is, as you know, is still technically in litigation. So I'm, I'm mostly going to demur yeah, on that question. Let, let me say the following, though. Uh, the 11th Circuit uh, – like any federal court, and in particular any federal court of appeals, is something we need to take very seriously. Um, beyond that, uh, what I would say is there is something of an irony um, in that uh, what seemed, at least to my reading of the opinion to concern the court in part, was what it felt was vagueness in the order. Yes. I think we can actually quibble back and forth how vague the order was, um, but there are times when parties with which the FTC deals don't necessarily want check, check, check when it comes to data security. Uh, and how this order bears on that tension, I think, remains to be seen. I, I completely agree. You don't really want to be told to do 20 things that make sense today and won't make sense in five years. Uh, uh, but the 11th Circuit is also saying, please don't try to future-proof this with, with vague language. Uh, and I recognize you you don't want to uh, discuss the details of that. And I, I uh, appreciate that. Uh, you should take it, uh, the 11th Circuit seriously. Obviously, the last com commission should have taken seriously their own ALJ uh, decision, which said, no, this is not a good case. Uh, and instead, I, I have to say, I think this was the bad staff and uh, uh, a commission that listened too hard to them. I'm not going to ask you to comment on that. Uh, uh, they should have uh, they recognized they had a loser by the tail and cut their losses. But OK, uh, let's. Let's talk about competition law because it ties to, to this. Uh, Silicon Valley is full of what might be evanescent but which are pretty deep-seated um, uh, market niches uh, that uh, nobody's going to be easily 
pushed out of. Uh, networking effects and uh, the tyranny of code and defaults means that, you know, uh, it'll be hard to uh, uh, dislodge Google for search or um, or Android for uh, mobile phone operating systems or Facebook and Twitter for social media because, you know, everybody else is there too, so you just stay. Um, and I've been interested, and frankly, so has most of Congress, uh, in the way in which those market dominances are exploited in non-financial terms, and in particular, um, employees of um, Twitter and Facebook have, um, I think it's fair to say, uh, enjoyed the way in which their market dominance allows them to shut down conservative speech more aggressively than uh, um, uh, left-wing speech. Uh, and I guess my question is, to what extent is that a legitimate concern of competition policy? Let me start by saying outside competition policy, um, that may very well be a legitimate concern. Um, with respect to competition, though, there are two things that I would note. The first is that even though it doesn't often seem like it on any given day or even in any given year, uh, the market does have ways of correcting things. So if there is demand for a product that isn't being offered and the demand is real, um, the market can offer that product. Maybe one of these companies sees the value in that competing product uh, and maybe that's how the, the issue gets solved. That's a way that competition, not quite competition policy, uh, may solve the problem. Uh, with that said, uh, personally, I am reluctant uh, to get antitrust law into the business of addressing problems, however real they may be, but that are ultimately exogenous to the concerns that animate antitrust law. Mm -hmm. Um, one of my concerns is that it may leave us without a clear rule of decision. So choosing between a diversity of voices and efficiency, where do we go? Right. There may be no answer to that question. The second is um, I am concerned that you entrust folks like me who may not be experts on those questions uh, or like our staff or what have you um, with trying to make decisions on those basis. And I think there's a there's an accountability problem there um, and there's a practical problem there. Uh, so I'm a little bit leery of of dropping competition law into that particular uh, issue. Although, as you as you lay it out, you might say that is a harm um, that might be part of the consumer harm that would justify structural uh, changes designed to ensure greater uh, competition. You might say, well, look, they, these guys are taking their monopoly profits in moral preening, let's say, uh, as opposed to more income. Uh, but we can account for the fact that there is still uh, a, a market dominance and an extraction from at least some part of consumers. Uh, uh, and therefore, we're going to uh, uh, we're gonna weigh that along with the consumer harm from lack of competition for uh, advertising dollars uh, in deciding whether we have a basis for pursuing uh, a breakup uh, option. Look, I'll say the following. There are a lot of folks out there today who look at a lot of different problems and say, that's something antitrust can address. I mean, really, the list grows daily. Yes, every day. Um, 
I am concerned about adding to that particular pot. Okay. So then it probably is a, a tr troubles you that the Chinese seem to have decided that this is just an all-purpose way of asserting themselves in uh, uh, global markets and showing that they are not without weapons in trade wars. Uh, I, I don't see another explanation for the decision to let the NXP deal expire. Uh, and, uh, um, and that raises the question. Uh, we've also seen this $5 billion uh, fine of, against Google on grounds that uh, they don't compete with Apple, apparently, uh, which, again, seems a little questionable. I, it raises the question, what can U.S. competition authorities, you and the Justice Department, do when you think that foreign countries are abusing competition law to achieve completely unrelated uh, purposes? So, this, to me, is the most important reason not to allow into our antitrust law all those sorts of exogenous concerns. When you cross that Rubicon, what, you, what will result is more um, of that kind of conduct from other countries. I'm not going to speak to the merits of what the Chinese did on NXP or the Europeans on Google. Um, the, one of the things that the U.S. has done really well for decades is take our consistent, coherent, rational and reliable antitrust law and take it to other countries. Uh, I've been abroad to help do this. Uh, many others have before me and many others will after me to show the benefits of the law, the real rule of law that we have. Um, once we succumb to the temptation to find other goods, uh, it will be even more encouraging for other countries to do that. So I, I, I hear you, but I wonder if you might not have some second thoughts. At the end of the day, when you go to foreign bureaucrats and say, here's a really uh, important weapon, it, 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 it's, it's potentially fatal to some companies, uh, and you can wield it, and we recommend that you wield it uh, on behalf of this particular cause, which is efficient markets. Um, once you've get handed them the weapon, you can't be sure they're actually going to take your advice about how to use it. Uh, and we are now in a position where there are a dozen countries or more that can kill a deal. Uh, I'm beginning to wonder whether deals are ever going to get approved at all. Let me say one thing. I think they've had the weapon. <laughs> yes. Okay. Uh, you know, to, to the extent antitrust law is a weapon. But fundamentally, I don't think it should be a weapon. And I do think we have a role to play in explaining to them why in antitrust law, that is an important weapon for consumers and for competition, isn't well used in other regards. You want to attract foreign direct investment. You want your markets to operate efficiently. You want a good market for corporate control. This can help you. Um, if it's whimsical, if it's up to the government to pursue exogenous policies, um, those may not work out as well. Okay. You know, you, you gave a talk Friday uh, to the Internet Governance uh, uh, Organization. I was also there, and uh, I, I, I read your remarks. And the, the thing I was struck by was the theme or the concern that you expressed that privacy um, is going to cement um, uh, advantages that big companies have uh, uh, because they can 
throw a thousand, well, Filipino contractors at a particular problem and solve it, uh, even if it feels like excessive regulation, whereas their struggling competitors don't have that kind of, uh, uh, those kind of resources. Um, is there more to be said other than to be careful what you wish for? I mean, I think that's a really important point. I think there's a lot more to be said on privacy. We're hearing it every day. We're going to hear a lot more. Uh, but the what I wanted to accomplish in that speech more than anything was to say to people, consider this question when you run ahead. Uh, in particular, as the United States uh, is having a more and more robust discussion about whether and how we do privacy uh, regulation, um, it can have this anti-competitive effect. Um, and maybe that's worth it, right? Maybe we want to trade right. for all the goodies of privacy, uh, the well-being of startups and this sort of thing. But the point is to have the discussion to pretend that issue doesn't exist um, is not a good idea. Yeah, so I and I have made this argument in connection with cybersecurity that uh, um, we get cybersecurity mainly from companies with very strong market niches. Uh, Microsoft does a great job on uh, uh, its operating system. Uh, um, uh, Google does a pretty good job on Android. Apple does, uh, as you might expect, since they make more money off of theirs, uh, an even better job with uh, their operating system. Uh, and nobody does anything for the Internet of Things because of their $15 uh, uh, devices that no one makes more money on. And I have said, you know, maybe what we need is an Apple or a Microsoft or a Google um, to establish a market niche where they are making so much money they can afford to give us some cybersecurity. So I've, I've had that argument for sure. It does make sense at, at some point. I think the Europeans are uniquely comfortable with concentrated industry, makes it more efficient to have your uh, lobbying. Uh, uh, it's easier to punish the people you hate. Uh, you can identify, you can find them, and you can find them $5 billion uh, uh, for breathing or being in your market. Uh, and remarkably, uh, uh, Google is uh, a stronger company. Its market dominance is much stronger in Europe than it is in the United States. Uh, um, so, uh, and I'm not going to ask you to comment on any of that. Uh, uh, I do want to ask you uh, about how the commission's relationships are shaping up. Uh, it's been a pretty, I won't say bipartisan, but it has been um, a commission characterized by more comedy than, say, uh, and my choice, the International Trade Commission, which seems to always uh, be fighting with each other. Part of that is having a strong uh, chairman, uh, but it's also a tradition. And I wonder whether you see that tradition continuing in the Trump era? Um, I certainly hope so. Uh, look, the history of bipartisanship at the FTC is something of which we are all proud. Uh, and when we were all coming through our confirmation processes, the senators were very concerned about that. They wanted it to continue. I think we all want it to continue. Uh, as you know, bipartisanship requires give and take. Uh, and I hope we're up to that. All right. Uh, and so you're going to do a whole bunch of hearings. And that, now we've come to the point. We're going to do a whole bunch where, of hearings. Where, where you get to, to, to promote all yes. of the activities that uh, you want our listeners to participate in. Uh, principal among them was a bunch of hearings on competition policy. Is that right? Uh, they're actually not limited to competition policy. Okay. So they include privacy uh, and some other things, net neutrality. Uh, the chairman uh, 
has put out a notice that we are beginning in the fall going to do a series of hearings that will last months on a variety of different topics. Uh, this is an important opportunity uh, for us to begin to grapple with a lot of the big questions that a lot of folks have laid out about almost everything we do at the FTC. Um, I think the comment period uh, closes pretty soon. So for those folks out there who are interested uh, in making sure uh, that we hear from you uh, and, and speak to the issues about which you care, um, I think the information is available on our website, how to weigh in. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm, I, I will try to get in my traditional view that uh, the FTC should acknowledge now that it's involved in cybersecurity, which has a big national security component, that it, like the FCC, will um, – defer to the executive branch on national security issues. Uh, it's never said that. Uh, I, and one questions whether it wants to say that. Uh, but it would be prudent now for the FTC to be more candid about the ways in which it interacts with national security policy and the ways in which it could serve national security policy. So I will I'll submit that, and I look forward to uh, uh, appearing before you at some point to testify on that. How about you? Are you going to be giving any more speeches uh, off to Brussels, uh, assuming nobody else thinks that Brussels is uh, someplace they want to go to? Oh, I think Brussels is very much a place I want to go. Okay. I was just distinguishing it from Paris. Yes, yes, yes. I, I'm sure uh, it's just that um, well, nobody's spouse wants to go to Brussels. That's, that's my view. Uh, <laughs> um. Having given my last speech three days ago, I don't have anything. I actually probably do have something on the calendar, but it's so far in advance. I okay. don't yet want to preview it, um, but I will let you know. All right. Well, thanks to Noah Phillips for a wide-ranging and thoughtful and uh, in some cases candid, but not too candid, uh, uh, a set of remarks. Uh, um, I I'm going to give a little bit of reader feedback. Uh, we got a couple of notes uh, on the Bobby Chesney deep fakes uh, note. Mark Siegel said, uh, I'm not sure I get the point. Uh, it, 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 it's always been possible to uh, uh, lie, and lots of people do, and we should get used to essentially figuring out what's a lie and what's not. Uh, Michael Collins uh uh, raises the question, which I think is a little bit of an answer to Mark Siegel, which is what do we do when state actors uh, um, start faking the watermarks uh, and uh, distributing really persuasive fakes for uh, the political goals of their own? Uh, uh, and now let me just say uh, thanks to Noah, thanks to Matt uh, Hyman, uh, thanks to Gus Hurwitz, and thanks to Dr. Megan Reese uh, for joining me. This has been Episode 228 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. Remember, you've got a month of drought ahead of you unless we decide to start releasing a few of the better interviews uh, with a new introduction. Uh, we haven't quite decided on that. Uh, so uh, check your feed. Maybe you'll have something to listen to and maybe you won't. Otherwise, enjoy August. Uh, send us your suggestions for people we ought to interview in September. Cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Uh, I'll come back in September and start tweeting again about possible stories. Love to get your feedback on that. Love to get your feedback in reviews on iTunes and Google Play. Um, show credits, uh, Lori Paul and Christy Jorge are our producers. Doug Pickett is our audio engineer. Uh, I, I, I really... 
I always feel as though I'm NPR when I get to, when I say that. Uh, um, uh, 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 Michael Beaver is our intern and organizing principal. I'm Stuart Baker, your host. Please join us again in September as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.